Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Another banger week this week. Not as banging as last week, but still some good. classic banging. That's right. Classics we'd never seen. Yeah. It feels good to delve, delve into the classics. But before we do that, I wanted to shout out something really, really cool that we did. Um, We sat down and had a very lovely conversation with Wesley from Nowhere Fast Podcast. And it was so, so lovely. Um, we talked about, you know, we didn't really have a plan going into it. And that felt, you know, as two people that really like having plans and making outlines and doing up all our notes and stuff, it felt kind of refreshing to, you know, be able to let somebody else take the reins and, guide the conversation and it was so fulfilling and so lovely Wesley's such a kind person and had so many kind things to say to us and about us and I would do it every week absolutely um it also feels like we're part of like cool Edmonton club because so many cool people have been on his podcast um but I think that it would be a lovely thing for those of you who listen to us here to go over and take a listen to that. Um, You'll get to listen to us talk about like our history with movies and our like ethos around movies and our more about like our personal lives without specifically talking about the movies we watched in a singular week. And it was really fun to be able to talk in that way. Yeah. So check it out. Nowhere Fast podcast. Listen to it wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll put links in the show notes. You bet. Okay. Let's get into the smackaroonies. I got to pick the one and only mystery pick of the week um, because we are going to be living at the theater for the next couple months. Mm -hmm. There are some absolutely banging films at our favorite theater, Metro Cinema. Um, And while we haven't seen what's there in October yet, we're in trouble. Yeah, we'll probably be in trouble. So I 
felt the pressure of the mystery of the singular mystery pick. And I wanted to watch something that I'd been meaning to watch for a while. And we had a little bit more time because it was a weekend, a long weekend. And so I picked something that was two and a half hours. Whoa. I picked uh, Woman in the Dunes, a 1964 drama thriller. It was our first film that we have seen by director Hiroshi Teshigahara. It was written by Kobo Abe, who did the screenplay and also wrote the novel that the film is based on and co-written by Aiko Yoshida. It stars Eji, Eji Okada as entomologist Niki Junpai and Kyoko Kishida as the woman. Synopsis. An entomologist on vacation is trapped by local villagers into living with a woman whose life task is shoveling sand for them. I really honestly didn't know anything about this other than it's an incredibly well-regarded film that Tejigahara is an important filmmaker who we hadn't yet started watching mm. and that I really was intrigued by the cover. And so I picked it. What did you think of Woman in the Dunes? It's so funny because, yeah, I also did not know anything about this film yet when I went to rate it on Letterboxd, it was in my list. Yeah, I saw that. You're like, I've never heard of this. And I'm like, well, it's on your watch list. I think that I go through spells where I'm looking at lists or watching interviews or just scouring the internet for the best films of all time or movies you have to see before you die. And this was more than likely on one of those. And I just thoughtlessly added it. But I'm glad that I did because it was it was really great. And the longer that I sat with it, I loved it more and more. I agree. It's one of those like lingering films that both in talking about it and just sitting and thinking about it and in reading about it, I'm just like, oh, yeah, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, it's such. The powerful punch that it packs slowly reveals itself throughout the film so effectively that it's it's a slow punch, if you will. And when it hits it, it hits even past watching the film, which, again, just speaks to the power of it. It's exploring that it, like it's exploring this the dynamic between these two people in this isolated place. And then it brings up so many questions just about life and society and the, the things that we do just as people to, to survive and what begets what in our lives and it's all to to quote parasite it's also metaphorical <laughs> it's uh it's interesting because very often we have these like accidental themes running through the movies we picked um and one of the accidental themes this week which is particularly interesting cuz most of the things we saw in the theater is movies that were initially panned on release that were reevaluated later and are now considered some of the best films of all time. Mm. Um, and that happened with this as well. But good buddy Roger Ebert yeah. liked it at the time and continually talked about how great he thought it was. And one of the things that he said about it, I actually read you his whole review because I found it really strong mm -hmm. and like interesting in thinking deeper about the film itself is he said that the film so effectively is both realism and parable <clears throat> so that at the, you're both watching the film for the film itself, but it also is so effective as a tale about what's currently happening in our world. And sadly, this film still feels incredibly relevant. Mm -hmm. It's this 
look, this idea of like endlessly doing something you don't particularly enjoy doing, that feeling of constant stress and being trapped. So you have to keep doing the thing, but yet doing the thing still keeps you feeling stressed and trapped, but yet you continue to do it because you're told to do it. Mm-hmm. Which is, um, there's a line in this film that I won't say because it's such a good line and I think it's good to hear it in context of the film, but it reminded me of the line from, um, I can't remember which song it is by Metric, but one of my favorite Metric songs that is drive this car to, or buy this car to drive to work, drive to work to pay for this car. Patriarch. Patriarch on a Vespa. Yeah. Um, if you don't listen to Metric. Canadian Gems. Yeah, that is the the music of our youth. But, you know, like it so often feels that way of am I living my life to enjoy it or am I living my life to do all of these things so that I can continue to live my life? Mm-hmm. And I think the film captures that so well on a symbolic level, but it's also incredibly captivating to watch on a literal level. Yeah. No, 100%. And the perf- the performances from our two leads just draw you in. Yeah, and- there's a slow building tension and question of what everyone's motives are and what's going to happen. It's really, really compelling. And the um, visuals are stunning. Yeah, there is some. I, there was one review or an article or something that you read me. Roger Ebert, where he said there's never been sand photography like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's true. It moves like it, it looks like CGI. It's it's very uncanny. It's beautiful. And it's part of the Japanese New Wave cinema movement, which a funeral parade for roses is also in that. Um, I don't know why I can't think of a word. It's just in that like oeuvre of films of mm-hmm. Japanese New Wave. Um but this is so also keenly a part of the like 1960s style that we've come to realize we really, really love, like the art style of them and mm-hmm. the way that they kind of blend both a compelling story with a artistic and existential exploration of something in a more abstract way. And yet you can do you can like kind of experience both of those things at once. And we've noticed that a lot in these 1960s films that we like. Um so that was wonderful to have another 1960s film that we're like, yeah, real good. Uh, we, I don't think we're able to experience it in a way that would have been ideal because <laughs> Criterion Channel crapped out on us uh, about halfway through the movie. Yeah, and we were we I had I had decided earlier in the day that we were going to watch this movie, and then we didn't get it started as early as I wanted to, so we were a little tired. Um, But I was like, well, we're watching this movie anyway. I don't care. I've picked it. Um, And then we spent probably 20 to 30 minutes trying to get Criterion Channel working again. You know, uninstalling it, reinstalling it, rebooting the TV, signing out, signing back in. And we tried it, trying it on a computer instead of on the TV. And then I finally went to Reddit and there was just this like big post that people were commenting on being like Criterion isn't working for me either so it was clearly like a site-wide issue and people were like listing how far they were into the movie that they were in and the sweetest loveliest thing that happened is somebody made a letterboxed list called criterion isn't working tonight (laughs) with all of the movies that we had to stop watching thankfully for us woman in the dunes with a with the identical quality subtitling is on youtube yeah so it is free on youtube to watch um 
you don't need Criterion Channel to watch it. And it really sucks that we took like a 20, 30 minute break, frustrating break in between. An, un, an unwanted intermission. <laughs> an unwanted intermission, but then we got it, got it back. And I feel like when I'm able to watch it, not tired, not with a 20 minute unintentional intermission, um, it's going to be a five out of five. It is one of Tarkovsky's top 10 favorite films. It checks out. And this film um, was the first Oscar nomination for a Japanese director. Oh, wow. Which is pretty. Big deal. Yeah, pretty like significant moment in time. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think I want to revisit this at another time. And I think that I will enjoy it even more. The more that I think about it and the more that we've even just talked about it here, the more I, I love it. I can see why it's so beloved. And yes, despite the frustrating criterion uh, issues and the fact that our cat has got into this habit of whenever we watch movies in our main movie watching room, he just decides he's going to be a little prick. So having to deal with those frustrations as well, the movie was still great. And despite all of that, something that was on my mind throughout this whole thing is I could not shake thinking about a line from Napoleon Dynamite where he's like, I didn't know grandma went to the dunes. <laughs> we don't hear, du- I mean, obviously the movie Dune, but you don't hear dunes plural often. Well, there's I some- mean, I guess we don't really have dunes in Alberta. And the, the connection of woman in the dunes to what the heck is grandma doing at the dunes? <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite and Woman in the Dunes could not be two more different movies, but I love that you were bringing them into conversation with one another. I, I almost wanted to make the connection of Woman in the Dunes to Napoleon Dynamite, but... How did Woman in the Dunes make you feel? Reflective on life and all of its stuff. Stuff, good <laughs> word. <laughs> stuff and things, man. Stuff and things, indeed. How did it make you feel? And it made me feel drawn into the slowly suffocating allegorical nightmare. It's a, it's a intense movie. Yeah. Go watch it for free on YouTube. Go watch it for free on YouTube. Okay. We ventured out to the theater for the first time this week, and we watched the 1977 adventure drama thriller Sorcerer. It's directed by William Friedkin, RIP, and I believe that his death was the impetus for them wanting to show this film. Yeah, they do a lot of that at Metro where they'll... Actually, that's the first of two movies this week where that happens. So. Yeah, un- unfortunately, but also. Uh, I think it's a lovely thing that they do getting yeah. to like honor a filmmaker or a someone involved in film by getting one of their films in shortly after a death. Yeah. Writing credits are Waylon Green, who wrote the screenplay for this, uh, and it's based off the novel by Georges Arnaud. It stars Longboy extraordinaire himself mr magician's body roy scheider as scanlon slash dominguez bruno kremer as victor slash serrano francisco rebel as nilo amadou kassem slash martinez uh ramon bieri as corlette peter capel as lartigue and carl john as marquez i don't know who anybody is in this this movie (laughs) no not really (laughs) synopsis Four unfortunate men from different parts of the globe agree to risk their lives transporting gallons of nitroglycerin across dangerous Latin America ju- Latin American jungle. 
I didn't even know that much about this movie. But oh boy, what'd you think of Sorcerer? So this is, it's interesting that you say that because I also knew nothing about it. I feel like I'd never even heard of it. And then when you, you saw it was coming to Metro, you were like, oh God, we got to see it. Um, and then I started seeing online that most of the people that I follow on Letterboxd really like it, that it's a really well-liked film. I saw the title. I knew that it was directed by the guy who made The Exorcist and I got really excited. But in that way, by not learning anything else about it, I feel like I actually experienced what people were experiencing to some degree when they saw it originally, mm-hmm. which is that what most people knew about it was that it was directed by the guy who made The Exorcist. And this movie is not The Exorcist. <laughs> yeah. So I want to actually start with the interesting information about it being a box office failure, like that this movie totally crashed and burned. And and also it was just like critically people didn't like it. It's a remake of a French film that is also based on the book. Mm. And it's a really well-liked French it's a really well-liked film, French film. It's a really well-liked film, period. Mm-hmm. Um, both of these films are on the Letterbox Top 250, but the original one, the French one, is actually higher up than this one. Mm. So there's a lot of like, why did we need to remake this movie? It's already really good. Um, people felt like, critics felt like the characterization was lacking. But I read some interesting things about why people feel like it was a box office failure. So there's three key reasons that they credit for it being a box office failure. The first is that it was released right after Star Wars, like right around the same time as the original Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Um, so the, the editor of the film, Bud Smith, there's a quote from him. This is so sad. So this is a quote from him. Quote, when our trailer faded to black, the curtains closed and opened again and they kept opening and opening and you started feeling this huge thing coming over your shoulder, overwhelming you and heard this noise and you went off into space. It made our film look like this little amateurish piece of shit. I told Billy Friedkin, we're freaking being blown off the screen. You got to go see this. Mm. So just like there was no competing with Star Wars. Um, so that was one of the reasons. And I think any film would have struggled to compete with Star Wars. And who could have known yeah. that that was going to happen. Another reason people say that it failed at the box office is the title. So the the combination of the title being Sorcerer, which is not the title of the original book or film, the original book and film are Wages of Fear. Having it being called Sorcerer when this is the movie by the guy who made The Exorcist set expectations for me as well. Like when I went to watch this, I expected it was going to have a horror supernatural element. To well, yeah, it. I mean, like the poster has a spooky looking truck and then it's called Sorcerer. So yes. I'm just like, there's going to be creepy truck and some magic exactly right so even (laughs) even now in 2023 having not really looked into what it was about i was really surprised that it's not at all supernatural or horror i mean it's not like there aren't horrific moments but it is not a horror film um so people said that was a reason And then the other reason is that, and this totally makes sense, thinking about the 19, this came out when? 1977. The first 16 minutes of the film have no English language dialogue. And so people would leave the movie. Like they'd be like, oh, this is like a stupid non-English film. And so they, a lot of theaters put out like big signs being like, this is an English language film after the first 16 minutes it's in English for the rest of the movie. Um, Because people were, were dropping like flies being like, this isn't scary. There's no English speaking. I'm going to go see Star Wars. 
So it was like this trifecta of things. And then you've already got the pressure of why are you remaking a film that was already good based on a book that was already good. So really sucks. And then what I was reading is that people, this is so sad that around this moment is kind of the time that Ocher cinema is not well-funded anymore. That there's a lot less here, take the money, we trust you, go make a movie. And there's more, nope, we're going to have, like, studio's going to have its hands in the pot. Um, and people really say it's like that because of that combination of a, a handful of auteur artists making films that weren't successful and then Star Wars being so successful that they're like, nope, we need stuff more like Star Wars. So if this classic director wants to make a film, we want to make it more like Star Wars and not give them final cut privileges. And yeah, you can't sell a lot of toys for a Bergman film. (laughs) No. So yeah, it's really all of that makes sense to me. And to start to get into what I thought of the film for the first hour, I really didn't like it. And not, I mean, I love a non-English film. So I actually was kind of excited to see that it was in other languages. Uh, I don't like Star Wars, so that wasn't a problem. But the title of the film was a problem for me because I was like, "What? Like, why is this just like guns and when's the magic? And yeah, where's the scary? Where's the exorcist? Where's the wands? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't really like sorcery stuff either, but I was expecting (laughs) it to be scary. I want the guy in the pointy hat holding his hands (laughs) out in claw formation. Where's Kamek? Holy shit. I never thought of Kamek as a sorcerer. <laughs> he is, though. The so- Yeah, he's the sorcerer. What's the noise he makes when he, like, makes the stuff disappear? Like, you know, that noise? I-, I don't. When he shows up in a castle and he waves his little wand and then... In- whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and then he ends up, like, dissolving part of the bridge beneath you. But you also got to dodge the... Anyway. If you don't know what we're talking about, Kamek is <laughs> the sorcerer of the Super Mario world. <laughs> Yeah, I was expecting uh, I was expecting more Kamek, <laughs> less trucks. And honestly, for like the first hour of the movie, I was like, oh, my goodness, I, am I going to hate this well-liked movie? Because I'm not enjoying this. I'm really bored. Hmm. It wasn't what I expected. This sucks. Now, the difference between me in 2023 and the folks in 1977 is I know this is a well-liked movie. Those folks are like, what the what the hell is this? <laughs> I'm re- I'm re- I'm going to Star Wars, and yeah. I'm just like no, it's a well liked movie. Hold your horses, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, because this has since been reevaluated, and people, critics and audiences do really like. As per the unintentional theme of the week, so for the first hour, legitimately, I was quite bored. Um, and then they get in those trucks. Oh baby! And the rest of the film was amazing. For me, I mean, other people, I think, like the whole movie and maybe I would on a rewatch like the whole movie. But I really liked it once they got in the trucks. Mm -hmm. Once they started to transport gallons of that nitroglycerin across a dangerous Latin American jungle, I was like, yeah. (laughs) Devil's juice. (laughs) (laughs) They do not call it. No, they really don't. Yeah. So my experience with it, Something that was interesting is that William Friedkin, I'm pretty sure I've only 
ever seen The Exorcist. That's the, these are the only two Friedkin films I've seen. He loves a very slow burn that builds to some of the best cinema that there is. Yeah, because The Exorcist is like that too. And I haven't seen The Exorcist in a while, but oh man, do I want to rewatch it. I'm really crossing my fingers that Metro gets it and we're able to see it in the theater. I, you know, even if Metro doesn't get it, it just you gotta watch it. It just comes to the theater. I'd love to see it in the theater. But would you not agree that between The Exorcist and Sorcerer, that yeah, you have to get through this slow burn, but it gets to like some of the most iconic oh, shit. Yeah, one like I don't know that I can really think of any other film that I was so not on board for. And then it flipped so drastically. Mm. It's not like I hated the first hour, but I was just like, this is kind of boring. And and in retrospect, I understand what he's doing with that first bit of the film. I do think, and this is going to come up in another film that we watched, that there's a certain kind of filmmaking that's like really well respected then and now that I find quite cold and quite distant. Um, we're like, we don't really get a sense of the emotional life or stakes for the characters. It's just all very like objective and mm. that kind of thing. And I, I do think that's happening in here. But once they get in those trucks, this is literally the most stressed I've been in a movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 up there with Parasite. Right. We're like, I am just. I was gasping. <laughs> I had my hand over my mouth. I got to tell you that oh, yeah. that part of the film is phenomenal and seeing it on the big screen was really incredible yeah i mean never has driving slow with a specific focus on precision driving fundamentals felt <laughs> as high octane as a high-speed car chase sequence in a film yeah this was like <laughs> if canada's worst driver was a really good movie i'm like where's andrew young husband yeah here? why is he why is he not there being like you don't know where your tires are yeah which was a really key component in this film, being able to know where your tires were. And I'm really bad at that. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to transport the nitroglycerin. I would have blown up. Oh, yeah. Like, it's crazy how tension-filled a bump in the road felt in this film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was... I was really, really into it. Um, and I also was really compelled with like what the film to me was saying about like labor and exploitation of labor, which was interesting because it was yeah. also playing on Labor Day. And I don't know if that was intentional or not. But, you know, I mean, that day I'm seeing all these folks posting things about labor and workers rights and the history of unions and things like that. And so that's on my mind as I'm watching it. And then, you know, what what folks are doing, taking on a dangerous job. um, that they know is dangerous because the people with money don't want to do the dangerous thing. Yeah. Felt pretty relevant. Yeah. No, I, I love that it has something to say on the working class and their place in society and the hierarchy of humanity. I I didn't expect those layers. I will say too, like the, I didn't mind the slow burn as, yeah, as you much. like a slow burn. Yeah. And I even missed well, I mean, one of the I first sequences because I'm like, I decided last minute, I'm like, I need to get popcorn. So I missed like the title card and like the first little bit. You had to give me a quick catch up. Yeah. And even and mustard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good one. But I like, but I liked the the buildup. I liked the introduction of the characters. And I, I was in for the slow burn and I would definitely rewatch this. And I think I'd appreciate the intro even more now. Yeah, I, I agree with that one. Do you, um, do you want to know why he titled it Sorcerer? Please. Okay. 
This is a quote from uh, Billy Friedkin. Ah, Billy S. Nope, that's Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> like his last name is Friedkin? Billy oh. F. Man, you can I tell you a quick embarrassing story? Is it about Shakespeare? No. One time I was over at my very, like my best friend's house. I had been there so many times growing up. And his dad's name was Terry. And at the time I had a friend whose dad's name was William. And one time I walked into my best friend's house, saw his dad and say and said, hey, William. <laughs> and we had been friends for over 10 years at this point. And he's like, William, never been more embarrassed in my life. <laughs> you should have ran with it. I mean, I did that just a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's the worst feel. I've never. Oh, I agree. Worse. I mean, I think we told the story on the show, but I was at one of my best friend's houses. I know his parents incredibly well. I've been to funerals. I've been to weddings with them. All of the things. We're sitting there. And his mom goes, oh, yeah, something about Gary's family. And I go, who's Gary? Fuck. His dad. Sitting across from us. so embarrassing. Man. And I'm just like, well, I don't know. I just think of you as like Garrett's parents. Sometimes I think about the like moments like that just out of nowhere and i make a deep shame i'll be by myself and i'll go oh yeah <laughs> no, loud legitimately that is one of the most um shameful moments of my life yeah it and it i get really people's stinks. names wrong all the time i'm a teacher like i will say terry had one of my favorite bits my best friend and his family they were all shorter people my family is a lot of tall people so whenever i go there my sh i'd leave my shoes at the door and every time he came home and saw my shoes there, he would yell for the entire house, whose canoes are these? Wow. <laughs> That's a really good bit. For like a decade he did that? Oh, yeah. Wow. Nothing stopped Never him. let that joke die. Love okay, it. so do we want to know why Billy F. titled Sorcerer, Sorcerer, <laughs> yeah. despite the fact that it was not recommended? <laughs> Ill-advised, Ill Billy. Really, really mucked up the box office and mucked things up for auteur directors for all of time. Um, so, I mean, I... I'm going to say that's true. Uh, I have no no uh, no reason not to be the person who says that's true. So this is why he titled it Sorcerer. Quote, the sorcerer is an evil wizard. And in this case, the evil wizard is fate. The fact that somebody can walk out their front door and a hurricane can take them away, an earthquake or something falling through the roof, and the idea that we don't really have control over our own fates, neither our births nor our deaths. It's something that has haunted me since I was intelligent enough to contemplate something like that. Fate is always waiting around the corner to kick your ass. I mean, I get it. It's pretty heady, especially when you compare it to Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. There's I, wars in the stars. I find that this movie is like so sick and it ripped so hard. That the Sorcerer also makes that cool. That's just it. Like having the title Sorcerer is so metal. And I love yes, that. Metal is the perfect and like word for that. The type treatment, how it's like paint painted and it's just rough and gritty and yeah, it just feels sick. I mean, having I'm a beetle sorcerer with the cover that it has feels like a reason why it has like cult status now. Yeah. Everything is just mismarketed about this movie, it seems like. For the time. Yeah, like it seems like it was just a marketing mess. But in hindsight it all works for me yeah it to totally rips and then um this is also a really iconic 
film because it's the first time Tangerine Dream did a score for a film. I forgot about the soundtrack. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, they then went on. They were very successful after this. Like they did Near Dark, which we've covered on the show, but a whole lot of other things. And it's really, really impressive score. William Friedkin said that like he was so impressed with the score that he edited to the score rather than the other way around. Very E.T. of him. Very E.T. of him. Um, another thing I really like that he said is so the film is really four main guys in pairs Four main guys being dudes. Being dudes trying to transport dangerous nitroglycerin and drive really well. Really like saying nitroglycerin. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Um, and, you know, one of the critiques of the film was that you don't really get to know them. And I do agree you don't really get to know them. But, you know, for all the things that people do or do not like about the movie, it's clear to me in reading about it that William Friedkin was intentional and would stand by everything he did. Mm -hmm. So what he said about these characters was quote, one of my themes is that there's good and evil in everyone. I was not out to make these guys heroes. I really don't believe in heroes. The best of people have a dark side and it's a constant struggle for the better side to survive and thrive. Mm. And knowing that about it, I'm like, Oh, I see that this is, Rather than being about the interiority of the characters, it's more about like the objective goodness and evilness in everyone. Yeah. And I think that translates back to the like the setup for each of the four main characters at the start of the film mm -hmm. as we're like balancing goodness and darkness. And he really knew what he was doing. Yeah. This so movie is so stressful. It's so exciting. It was so cool to see it in a theater of people and I would definitely watch it again. Highly recommend. How'd it make you feel? It made me feel nail bitingly stressed out. <laughs> yeah. You? Tension laden and a hundred percent dialed in. Okay. Another film in the series this week of classics we had never seen that are playing in the theater. So we better go see them. Mm -hmm. We went to a movie at nine 30 PM on a school night, which I don't typically do but I really wanted to see this movie for the first time in the theater. So we went and saw The Return of the Living Dead. It's a 1985 comedy horror sci-fi directed by Dan O'Bannon, written by Rudy Ricci, John A. Russo, and Russell Strainer. Dan O'Bannon is a great name. Dan O'Bannon. Sounds like a radio DJ name. Oh, yeah. The Late, late Show with Dan O'Bannon. It stars Clue... Clue Gluid. It stars... <laughs> it stars Clue... Gulliger as Bert, James Karen as Frank, Don Kalfa as Ernie, Tom Matthews as Freddie, Miguel A. Nunez Jr. as Spider, Beverly Randolph as Tina, and Lene Quigley as Trash. And honestly, there's a lot more. Like, this is a real ensemble film. Mm. But I got sick of writing names down. Um, so, synopsis. When two bumbling employees at a medical supply warehouse accidentally release a deadly gas into the air, the vapors cause the dead to rise again as zombies. I love a horror comedy. Mm -hmm. I had always assumed Return of the Living Dead was a direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Mm. I just, I mean, it sounds like it. Um, and I, it wasn't until recently that I found out this is a horror comedy classic. And once I knew that, I really wanted to see it. So we went and saw it. What did you think of Return of the Living Dead? The Return of the Living Dead. I think I knew a little bit more about it than you did. Like I, kind of knew it was a horror comedy so i went into it looking for a fun and dumb fun and dumb time well, i knew that by the time we saw it and i mean it delivered on that oh yeah 
Yeah, it did. It, it's, I, I think I liked it more than you. And it's funny because, um, one of our letterboxed besties, um, which is a patented term that one of our other letterboxed besties, Emily Rugburn uses, is a person named Joe's. And he, when he, his review of Return of the Living Dead says he's a Return of the Living Dead kind of person, not a evil dead type of person. <laughs> and coming out of this, that's how I was like, this is my evil dead. Mm. But you are an evil dead kind of person. And evil dead has never really clicked with me. I've never really gotten why everybody likes it so much. I don't dislike it, mm. but I've never really gotten the like big appeal of it. But I do get the big appeal of this one. And I really, 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 really liked it. What did you like about it? Okay, so I've been thinking about it. And I feel like this you're going to be like, oh, yes. This to me is in the same vein of like a clue or a Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm, yeah. Where it's like just ridiculous people doing ridiculous things, running from room to room to room, ending up in different configurations with different people with some kind of like a horror or mystery element. And it's like that more British humor that like it did, it was never like slapsticky to me in the way that like an evil dead more is more physical comedy or like physical, like, I don't know. And I just, the effects are amazing. Mm -hmm. Like this tar man character. Yeah. Obsessed. <laughs> Love him. Um, I mean, I could do without the like one character who's naked the whole film. That, yeah, like that's that's one weird aspect that made me feel weird in a Jenny from Forrest Gump's butt smooshed against the stool yes. while she plays guitar kind of way. But to his credit, Dan O'Bannon and to his credit and not to Sam Raimi's credit, I will say, Dan O'Bannon said that he he did that and he's admitted it because he thought that it was all going to be like nerdy boys at the movies. And he was really surprised that so many women were at the movies, too. And I mean, he's definitely being a little like heterosexual oriented here but he said like if he knew that so many women were going to be there he would have also had um who's the main guy freddie he would have had freddie be naked too and since that movie I, apparently at least according to the internet every other movie he made had both male and female nudity <laughs> so at least he made good on that unlike sam raimi who's like i would take out that tree scene just kidding i'm gonna put it back in again <laughs> right so i could have done without that but other than that, I just thought it, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was very self-aware. I thought it was fun and silly, but also smart. I loved the ending. And I just love watching a ragtag group of people running into trouble. Yeah. Like, doesn't it feel like a stylistic sister to Clue and Rocky Horror Picture Show? Yeah, like it's it's a masterclass in taking the piss out of itself and understanding its genre. and playing with the tropes. I mean, it even references Night of the Living Dead. Well, so this is, do you know its connection to Night of the Living Dead? No. So John Russo, 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 let's say Russo. John A. Russo um, made Night of the Living Dead with George A. Romero. Mm. And they agreed after Night of the Living Dead that they would each take a branch of the franchise. And so John A. Russo was allowed to make films that had Living Dead in the title. And George A. Romero was just, dead so dawn of the dead i think he made other movies with dead in it yeah i think he did like day of the dead day of the dead there, so his didn't have living 
but John A. Russo got to have living. So he was um, part of the original Night of the Living Dead team. Mm. So in a sense, this is a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, but the John A. Russo side of the sequel, whereas like Dawn of the Dead is the George A. Romero side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like that it's even taking the piss out of that a little bit. Yeah. And having fun with it. The music rips. Yeah, the soundtrack, the, especially the main theme is killer. Oh, yeah. But even like the first time that like the zombies come out of the ground and like, you know me, I love dramatic irony. Mm-hmm. This movie's great dramatic irony where you're just like, what idiots? Yeah. This thing they just did. I like that it plays with the concepts of like what can and can't kill a zombie mm-hmm. and like it's so over the top with like what's coming back to life. Yeah. Like a half sliced dog. Yeah. Um, which apparently the team said if they'd know if they'd known it was going to be so successful and if they'd had more money, it would have been a great Dane. <laughs> <laughs> Not a little baby dog. I don't know. I just I thought it was so fun and and so funny. I could have done without the audience being so rowdy. Yeah, that's the thing when you run, when you go see these more cult classic type films is that it brings out cult classic type people and some of those people like to offer up their jokes at full volume so that the audience can listen to those and respond to those and like I didn't pay to come here for your jokes. <laughs> well the thing is I can get on board with it when like it's being presented as an event. But this was just a screening. Yeah. Like it was a staff pick. Um but it wasn't like, oh, this is a Rocky Horror Picture Show event where like, yeah, dress up and and shout things out but i still really enjoyed it i did have to ask someone to get off their phone scared the absolute shit out of them when i i I like to do this thing where i just like kind of go sit down beside them or like kneel down beside them and then just say hey hey there did you get off your phone i think that puts them in a really little kid place you know when somebody ducks ducks down gets to your level it's like hey i'm a teacher i know how to do this is this the best thing to be doing right now well i just said um Hey, would you please, would you mind not being on your phone anymore and finding it very distracting? Um, and they did not go on their phone anymore. So that was a win. Yeah. That was a win. I thought it was fun. I thought it was funny. I thought the soundtrack was awesome. And I could see myself watching this every year. I don't know if you feel the same way. Um, yeah, I'd watch it again. Every year? Sure. Yeah. I'll watch Evil Dead with you every year if you watch this with me every year. I don't want to watch Evil Dead every year. Oh, okay. <laughs> Would you like to know as a as a cap off what this movie is titled in other countries? Yeah. Okay. In German, Damn It, the Zombies Are Coming. That's really good. In Danish, The Dead Don't Care. <laughs> yeah. And this is my favorite one. Last one. In Greek, Zombies Aren't Vegetarians. <laughs> In case you didn't know. In case you didn't know, zombies are not vegetarians. That's really good. Well, I am very glad to have seen this. I think seeing it in a theater was really fun. We saw it with two friends who had seen it before and like kind of hearing their laughter starting a little early because they knew something like sick was coming Mm. was really fun and getting to like watch them be excited for us to, to experience it was really cool. Uh, so really glad I stayed out late on a Wednesday night to watch it. How did it make you feel? Uh, decently satisfied by its dumb fun. How did it make you feel? 
Yeah, I definitely liked it more than you. It made me feel joyfully icked and entertained at the horror comedy camaraderie. I don't know if I was just like in a... Eepie-poo-poo mood. I mean, you fell asleep, so... Yeah. Not the first time this week. Yeah, I've been tired. He's been tired. Yeah, yeah, I'd watch it again. But, yeah. Maybe I just need to watch it again. Okay. You're having a crisis. I guess so. Okay, we went back to Metro Cinema. And this, this is a big smackaroonie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this was Metro season opener. So last year, their season opener was Jurassic Park. And we went and it was lovely. They give you a bunch of updates of what the theater's done over the past year, as well as where they're going for the next year and just kind of ways you can get involved in stuff. It's, it's just a very lovely thing that they put together and they try to pick a really good film to accompany all of that. And this year they picked the 1941 drama mystery Citizen Kane. It was directed by Orson Welles and tons of writers on this one. So the original screenplay was by Orson Orson Welles as well as Herman J. Mankiewicz. And it it has some contributing writers that were uncredited, which were John Hausman, Roger Q. Denny, and Molly Kent. It stars Orson Welles as Kane, Joseph Cotton as Jebediah, Dorothy Comagore as Susan, Agnes Moorhead as Mary, Ruth Wark as Emily, and Paul Stewart, or sorry, Everett Sloan as Mr. Bernstein. Synopsis. Following the death of publishing tycoon Charles Foster Kane, reporters scramble to uncover the meaning of his final utterance. Rosebud. <laughs> what do you think of Citizen Kane? This was daunting, man. Like... To go and see a film that has, if you're somebody who likes film, which we have our whole lives, then you've heard that this is the best movie of all time, the greatest movie of all time. And heard reference to it. Like I knew shockingly little about it Mm -hmm. other than the poster. I knew really, like I've seen it a lot. And I knew that for some reason Rosebud mattered. That was about it. Um, Yeah. Same. And to go in being like, this is well lauded as the best, one of the best movies of all time is like kind of a nerve wracking thing. Cause like, it's what if I don't like it? Am I then like, do I even like movies? Do I, yeah. Do, do I not like movies or like, what if I'm like trying to make myself like it just so I can say I liked the greatest movie of all time? I will say, I think we're going in at the best time. Like I, think, I agree. Like, I think if I, I watched this as a kid, I would not have liked it. Yeah, like you and I talked about, like we had opportunities, many opportunities before now to watch Citizen Kane, and we didn't. And I think that was for the best. I think now on our movie watching journey was the right time to finally watch yeah. Citizen Kane for the first time. I mean, it allowed me knowing, like having a having watched just more older film, and I mean mostly older film in the like like sixties but we've been dabbling in the fifties. We've gone to see a couple like 1920s, 1930s films. Mm-hmm. We're starting to kind of learn more about like the history of cinema and innovations in cinema. I feel like we're able to have like an appreciation for it. And and my understanding after seeing it is that this is one of the reasons it's considered the greatest film of all time or one of the greatest films of all time. I don't think it's quite I think for a lot of our youth, it was like the greatest film of all time. And now it's, it's just up there. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it only has like a 4.2 or something on Letterboxd. I mean, it's old. It's dusty. It but but one of the reasons that it's so well lauded is that it did things no other film did. It did things cinema, or, or at least I read that it's not like none of these things had been done before, but not necessarily all together. Yes. Right. So like the set design, the narrative structure, the cinematography, the like in film and in camera tricks to like consider what the frame is going to look like. And then one of the big ones, I guess, is the use of score that like prior to this score was more of like a little 20 second here. I'm emotionally cueing you for the next thing and it stops. But that the score and the sound were Orson Welles having worked in radio and having like come off the heels of War of the Worlds really considered the way that sound was used both in dialogue, in like diegetic sound and in the score. And so like I, I actually I am able to recognize all of that in a way I don't think I would have when I was younger. I would have just been like, oh, I've seen this before. But here I'm like, that's pretty friggin' impressive that this exists in 1940s, having seen some other films around that time that aren't doing these things or films earlier that are definitely not doing these things. Mm-hmm. In terms of the film itself. I liked it enough. <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, I think I liked it a little bit more than you did. Yeah, I'll. So I'll just start with saying the things that really stuck with me was I'll start with saying that this was like you said already, it was gorgeously shot. The camera work, the use of lighting, focus, scale, it still feels fresh and exciting to me. Yeah. yeah. And I can still I can so appreciate the storytelling devices and appreciate the fact that it paved the way for so many popular and beloved stories that came much later. But overall, yeah, this, this didn't really do it for me. And you, you said something when we were talking about it yesterday that really stuck with me. And I think it's true. And I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing here, but I don't really seek out movies to engage me intellectually, but rather emotionally. And experientially. Yes. Yeah, because we we had a big conversation because one of the things I said about this is I so appreciate it on an artistic and intellectual level. Yes. And I even understand why some people like this is the movie for them. Like I think the concept of the film, like this very prominent figure has died and nobody knows what his last word means. And then somebody going and like talking to different people in his life and getting these different subjective interpretations of who he was is really compelling and is incredibly fresh for 1941. But through that, like I want a version of it where we then also get a subjective understanding of how he sees himself. (laughs) And, And that's not what the film's doing and the film doesn't need to do that. And that's why I love that film speaks to different people. Mm-hmm. But I find that so many of like the greatest films of all time have that kind of subjective detachment. Mm-hmm. Right. And they have that kind of coldness and like, and I said this in my letterbox review, but like there's only so much I really want to watch of unlikable men doing unlikable things. Yeah. And Charles Kane is not a likable man. And he's not doing likable things and he just gets more and more unlikable throughout the film, which I know is the intention of it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But then you asked me because you were like, okay, so if you're saying that like, you watch films for the emotional experience and like that's really clear in something like an After Sun, but you also love 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I was like, yeah, but I also love films that like through abstraction and through art and through like the fact that the film has no clear definitive meaning like an eraser head or a 2001 a space odyssey i like the existential way that it allows me to engage with the film on my own emotional terms and make my own meaning from it Mm -hmm. there is nothing of that going on in citizen kane this film does not want me to make my own meaning of it it wants me to understand the meaning that orson welles put into it yeah yeah that is this isn't a filmmaker that wants at least in this film because i love the trial and i think he is doing that kind of stuff in the trial But in this film, I don't see an invitation for me to engage with the film on my own terms. Yeah. Well, and I think the thing is to, I 100% agree with that. And I feel like the question, the reason I asked you the 2001 question is because I needed an explanation for myself and you're better with words than I. (laughs) And like the thing with stories like this too is these stories about very unlikable men doing unlikable things is that this is where the hot take film bros come out in droves. Oh yeah. It's uh, it's movies like this. It's movies like the Godfather or shows like breaking bad or around directors like Chrissy. No, no. And I don't need to be told what's good about the film. Like I, I want to be clear. I liked this movie. Like I did like it. And I also completely understand the way that it was precedent setting the way that it still feels fresh and the incredible craft that went into the making of the film particularly for its time, but even looking at it now. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I have to like it on an emotional level and I don't need anyone going <laughs> on and on to me about why it's an amazing movie. Don't need to mansplain why this is an amazing movie. Like, I get it. I intellectually understand that. But on an emotional level, I don't feel a connection to the events of the film or the character of the film. Like, the final reveal which we won't say what it is, but the final reveal is really strong. Like it's a really good ending to the film. Yeah. And yet I didn't feel anything emotionally. Yeah. It's not like the final moments of after sun where I am like sobbing. Yeah. And some people don't want that. Like some people do not want to watch a film that leaves them feeling that way. And Mm -hmm. that is the beauty of film. But what I get upset about is that the films that don't make me feel that way are often considered the greatest films of all time. Mm-hmm. And who gets to say what the greatest films of all time are. I like to come from it of a point of view of like, we all have subjective reasons for loving the films that we love. And if we can kind of agree on, even if you don't love after sun and that wasn't for you, but you can say it was really well made. It was really well acted. It's beautifully shot and it's incredibly, it's an incredible work of craft. Mm-hmm. Then I'm not, I don't need to go on and on to you about why it means something to me. If you listen to our show, then I I assume you want to listen to me go on and on about it, but I'm not going to ask you to do that unwillingly. Yeah. I'm not going to comment on your posts and go on and on about it. Um, And I don't need you to do that for me for a movie that like I have clear reasons for saying it's not my favorite movie of all time. Yeah. And I don't think that's, I feel like that's rarely worked. No, no. Where all of a sudden it's like, oh, of course. Right. I love it. Deep focus photography. 10 out of 10. But like the the comments that I saw so much, even when you were reading stuff to me and when I was looking stuff up about this, so many people, the narrative is it finally clicked for me after a third or fourth viewing. And frankly, I don't want to watch this four times. But I'm also curious if like 
did it click emotionally? Because I don't think that's what people are saying. I think they're thinking, I think they're saying it clicked like artistically, cinematically, intellectually. I, I want, so you, you made a really good comparison where you said, you know, uh, the films of Tarkovsky, uh, or even like take a woman in the dunes to use that language that we, we love so much that we've stolen from Thomas Wishloff who curated her curates the slowed down cinema. No, slowed down Sundays at Metro cinema films might take time to open themselves up to you. But when I think that I think on an emotional level, mm-hmm. I don't think of it on an intellectual level because I can read a million essays I gave up reading the Citizen Kane Wikipedia. I was like, there's too much. I'm done. I made it like 75% of the way through. And then I'm like, too, too, too much information. I can read a whole book about the craft of it and be really compelled by that. But nothing's going to be able to intellectualize me, rationalize me into feeling emotionally connected to something. Yeah. That just has to happen. And who knows? Maybe it would. But I am not really interested in finding out. I'm not saying I'll never watch it again. But I'm saying I'm not going to like go watch it four times in the next month so that I can get it. Yeah. Because I do actually get it. I am actually smart and well-versed in cinema. (laughs) Well, and there's no denying that this is a really impressive first film from Orson Welles. Oh, yeah. And 25 years old. He gets final cut privilege for this, which I guess was unheard of at the time. People were pissed at him. And he just like yanked the studio around like cheeky little guy. This guy, he would like because he was supposed to have permission to like have the studio not involved at all. And then sometimes they'd send like studio spies. And if they like figured out the studio spies would there, they're like agreed upon thing to do was everybody stopped and started playing tennis. Like he's a cheeky guy, cheeky guy. But, you know, being lauded as the best film of all time, I've already having only seen this and the trial, I already know he's capable of giving me experiences in cinema that I enjoy so much more. I got so much more from the trial than I got from this. And I think that just comes with time and storytelling and learning your craft even more and wanting to explore different things. So I'm not writing off Orson Welles and his work or anything like that. No, not at all. um, But I think that's the beautiful thing about cinema, right? Like take a Steven Spielberg we have friends who E.T. is their favorite Spielberg. We have people who Jurassic Park is. We have you who it's Jaws. Mm-hmm. I don't know what mine is. What's my favorite Spielberg? Minority Report. Definitely. Catch me if you can. Oh, I hate that movie. Actually, <laughs> I think it's so dry and boring. But take a John Carpenter. Like Halloween is by far my favorite. Mm-hmm. But for other people, it's the thing. And For other people, it's Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, yeah, I need to revisit it. I need to revisit it. But, you know, like that's that's the beauty of it. I we've only seen two Orson Welles films. But the trial blew me away. Yeah. And it's doing something different than what Citizen Kane is. And I don't doubt that some people who Citizen Kane, it blows them away. The trial doesn't. And I'm not going to try and force an emotional connection to the trial on them. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they're interested in reading more about like why from an intellectual and craft based level, it's strong or if they want to read about like thematic interpretations of it, they're welcome to do that. I'm not going to make them. Um, so yeah, I like, I appreciated the film intellectually, but I didn't necessarily feel connected to an experience or emotion while watching it. Also, there was somebody talking the whole time, like shut the fuck up during movies. 
Like who comes to the 1941, one of the greatest films of all time and then talks like screw you. Go home. Yeah. And, and to like the opening season of like a community based theater. Yeah. It's just be Get like out of here. An exciting celebratory place. Not a chit chat fest. Yeah. There's two observations that I just wanted to share out there. First of all, Orson Welles looked huge in this movie. Everyone looked so small and he looked massive. I think he is tall. I think he's six feet. Yeah. I always thought he wasn't. I always thought he had like little man syndrome. Just I don't know why, but he is tall. He's six feet, but I I don't know if he just like cast if it's like a thing where he wanted to elevate because Kane is supposed to be this like magnate pants. Yeah. Yeah. That he wanted to kind of dwarf everyone else around him. So he cast shorter people than he was. But he looks massive. Mm-hmm. Um, also, this has one very Hitchcockian jump scare that was just <laughs> it's excellent. so good. Uh, it was so it was so loud in the theater and it made me smile some. It was, it was pretty good. My favorite story coming out of this is there's a part of the film where there's a group of people singing a song to Kane. And I was like, I know this song. Like, I know this song really well. Like, I'm like, I'm starting to be able to like sing along to it. And then I was like, is it like a folk song? Like, what's the deal with this? And then I said to you, I'm like, Elliot, what? Like, I feel like it's like an indie artist. Like, what band has a song that like says, I bet you five, you're not alive if you don't know his name. And you're like, I don't know. I look it up and it's some like deep cut white stripes song. (laughs) But the White Stripes were like my favorite band in junior high. Um, and I listened to a lot of like, like pre iPod days, you listen to full CDs, right? And just play your favorite song on repeat. Um, so the song Union Forever, appropriate thematically when you consider Citizen Kane, right? Um, uses a whole portion of a song written for Citizen Kane in it that I know like the back of my hand. That was such a like weird dizzying experience. And then, the last thing I want to say is I do like Orson Welles. I find seeing, I'm so glad to have seen this movie. It feels like an important thing to have done. I think seeing it in the theater is especially special. Having seen the trial and loved it, having seen this and being able to like, like it and really appreciate it, even if I don't love it. I found at a record store this summer, a vinyl of the original radio show of war of the worlds by orson wells and i really want to listen to it this halloween yeah and i'm really excited yeah it'd be really cool how did it make you feel it made me feel grateful and in awe of the craft while emotionally distant i'm very similar in that regard i felt emotionally unfulfilled but appreciative of it okay next we went to a matinee i was very much looking forward to we went to the 1985 adventure comedy family film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. This was the second film this week that Metro was showing as Paul Rubens passed away recently. They wanted to show this, um, celebrate his life, and the character that is probably the biggest role that he ever did in his whole career of Pee-wee Herman. It was directed by Tim Burton and written by, I didn't know this, Phil Hartman. Who's uh, that? He was on Saturday Night Live. Oh. But uh, he also was in a lot of comedies and really big. Uh, as well as Paul Rubens and Michael Vorhall. It stars Paul Rubens as Pee Wee Herman, 
Elizabeth Daly as Dottie. Otherwise known as Tommy Pickles. Tommy Pickles. Uh, Francis Holton as Francis. Diane Salinger. No, Mark Holton as Francis. <laughs> what did I say? Francis Holton as Francis. Fran- I'm Francis Francis. Mark Holton as Francis. Diane Salinger as Simone. Judd Oman as Mickey. And Daryl Keith Roach as Chuck. I'll also say Monty Landis as Mario. Because I like magic. Synopsis. When eccentric man-child <laughs> Pee-wee Herman gets his beloved bike stolen in broad daylight, he sets out across the U.S. on the adventure of his life. What do you think of Pee-wee's big adventure? This is such a strange and humbling experience because <laughs> I'm a Tim Burton kid. I'm a Tim Burton 90s kid. You are a Tim Burton 90s kid. Yes. It's one of the deep points of connection with us. But despite being a Tim Burton 90s kid, I was never a Batman or P.B. Herman Tim Burton kid. I was strictly in the like Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice. Um, and then Mars Attacks, Ed Wood, like as I got older, that kind of stuff. So I had never seen P.B. Herman and I didn't really know much about him. Like I definitely, if I saw a picture, I could have told you who he was. But that was it. And in March of 2021, according to my letterbox. You showed me Pee Wee Herman, and I give it a three three out of five stars, no heart. Oof. But I didn't review it. Oh, so ice I have, cold. So I, well, I think I wasn't reviewing things at the time, and now I'm like, oh, this is one of those moments where I'm like, I'm glad that I review everything, even if it's like the fifth time I'm seeing it, because in a year, I'm going to want to remember what I thought about it when I watched it that year, mm. you know? So I clearly didn't like it. And I didn't I didn't go back and look at that until after we watched it this time. But I really liked it this time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I can't explain it. What do you think it was? Okay, let's. I love you. Thanks. I love you too. You can be a lot. This I can be true. a lot too, but in different ways. Your allotness is often very physical and verbal in terms of like being goofy. Mm-hmm. Like your arms are flapping, your voice is going, you're making noises, you're tippy-toey tapping. And sometimes I just look at you and I say, stop. Because I can get sensory overload really, really quickly. And that can be from seeing movement, from hearing really loud sounds, that kind of thing. And I feel like maybe the night that we first watched Pee Wee Herman, I didn't quite understand that that is him the whole movie. (laughs) Like he's a lot. Mm -hmm. He's... (laughs) He's a lot. And I think I just was probably in like having a bad sensory day. And I, I think I remember finding it funny at first and then just getting drained of it. Like just being like, I, this is too much for me. I can't keep going with this, mm-hmm. which happens with you and me a lot. Where like, I'll be like laughing and laughing and enjoying you. And then all of a sudden I'm just like, stop. Yeah. Like no more, no more. I can't do it anymore. Um, but I'm like, I'm not done. <laughs> <laughs> because we both have sensory needs that are very different from each other. <laughs> hard (laughs) but this time around i think i knew like i knew what to expect like peewee's a lot and he's going to be a lot for 90 full minutes be ready for that and then just there was so many people in the theater and a lot of like middle-aged men with other middle-aged men that like clearly this character means so much to them and i have such a hard time not being deeply impacted by that like when people love things on an emotional level which is like this character this movie means something deep to my heart 
I can't help but like try and open my heart to it too. Mm-hmm. Now, if they stood there and were like, let me tell you about the craft of Tim Burton, <laughs> I'd probably be like, my heart's closing right up. Yeah. But something about like, we were in the lobby and one of my coworkers who's like in his mid forties and is one of my favorite human beings saw me and was like Burton. And he was there with his, like his brother and his son and one of his sons. And I'm just like, and he loves Pee Wee Herman. Like, like he doesn't live in Edmonton. He drove out here with his kid to see this. Obviously Pee Wee Herman means a lot to him. Mm-hmm. And there were so many people like that. Like this had a bigger audience than Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Like, when Pee Wee Herman's name came up on the screen, just whoops and hollers that you could tell like people love him, mm-hmm. love the character and like the clapping at the end again, much more than Citizen Kane. It didn't feel like over clapping because we should. It felt like I love this character. I love this movie. And my little heart just, it was a Grinch moment. March, 2021, I was Grinch at the beginning of the story <laughs> and September 2023 my heart grew three sizes three sizes, sizes that day let's talk about what because you're you're that not not yet middle-aged no hope not no not not quite yet but you are a getting older mm-hmm. man whose heart is deeply in Pee Wee Herman's palm <laughs> yeah tell me why tell me about it I want to know I'm gonna kick things off with a hot take Oh, I got okay. more out of watching this than I did Citizen Kane. <laughs> oh, me, t- me too. Pee-wee's better than Citizen Kane. No, babe, babe. Can't, <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> Objectively. Oh, okay. You're um, here to hear, folks. Yeah. I told you. The hottest takes. I've been watching this movie since I was a little nugget. It came out before we were born. Yes. Um, and while I didn't watch Pee-wee's Playhouse, I did rent a few like best of tapes Oh, really? I was going to ask you that. So you didn't fully watch the show, but you have seen other Pee Wee Herman stuff and you did like it. Yeah. Um, I don't even think there is a way to watch that I knew of to watch Pee Wee's Playhouse. Like, I don't know if it was in syndication on anything, but I did rent like compilation tapes from the video store because I really liked this movie and I'm like, I want more Pee Wee Herman. Um, And what's funny about the version that I watched as a kid is that we didn't actually own a proper copy of it. It was recorded off of TV. Classic. So in my brain are ingrained all of the commercial breaks, all the oh, spots really? where commercials would be. And like, <laughs> and it's so funny because there's actually so many spots in this movie where it fades to black. And that's typically where the commercial breaks would be. But it's just so in my head of like, Oh, we're going to commercial. Um, and surely I loved it so much because of how Looney Tunes it all is. And I was a Looney Tunes kid. I loved Looney Tunes. And I think that that's where if I'm putting like the foot down pedal to the metal on being silly goofy, I lean towards manic Looney Tunes energy. Yeah. Manic is a good word. <laughs> but like what what is it about it that you think little you and grown you like so much? I dis- I think that despite the silliness of Pee Wee Herman and Lo- the Looney Tunes is that there is an underlying cleverness to it all. Yeah. That it is tongue in cheek and that it, there is a smart humor that exists in there. Like there's a lot of bits that watching, P- watching Pee Wee's Big Adventure now, 
I picked up on so many things and enjoyed so many jokes that even though I knew they were coming, like I know this movie so well that I got so much more out of it on this watch because of how clever and actually smart some of the bits were. Like when he goes and sees um, the palm reader and it's like palm reading tarot cards, income tax. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking that that would be like a sick art piece to do for someone who like loves Pee Wee's Big Adventure that's like really subtle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be that'd be sick and like really easy to do. But like as a what, I don't know, three to five year old who's watching this, I'm not gonna get that Income that tax. gag. Yeah. Like that's really that's great. Oh my god, there's a mattress bit that like I I've I know it. I know it by heart, but oh my god, it killed me this time. Yeah, and I there is I don't know that you'll ever get me on board with Looney Tunes. Because I think Looney Tunes is mean spirited at the end of the day. Like, I think Bugs gets his rocks off from, like, emotionally manipulating other people. Hot take. Yeah. Um, Whereas I think Pee-wee's Big Adventure is really pure at heart. Like, he just loves his bike. Yeah. And, like, it's one of those films with, like, a character who is annoying, but because he's so pure and charming, even in his annoyingness, that everybody falls in love with him and, like, wants to help him. Yeah. Well, and I think I was thinking about this while you were talking about these middle-aged men who are coming together to come see Pee Wee Herman. And I think I feel like Pee Wee Herman is just the embodiment of the fact that even adults can still be kids. But it's not even just that. So I was reading I was reading an Entertainment Weekly article about just like the character of Pee Wee Herman and Paul Rubens playing him. So not specifically this film. Um, It was written by Lester Fabian uh, Brathwaite. And he said that like Pee Wee Herman as a character is quote, knowingly winkingly queer. Hmm. So is there also something in Pee Wee Herman that specifically, because I hear so much about like presumably like cis hetero white men or middle-aged loving Pee Wee Herman Something about that that is permission to be a different kind of masculine. Yeah. And I'm always really compelled at like the movies that were so queer or had these more androgynous, effeminate, or just alternative forms of masculinity in them that you really liked as a kid because that feels so true to who you are now. It's like mm-hmm. Rocky Horror Picture Show and and this. I mean, Rocky Horror Picture Show is obviously more overtly, obviously like sexual, subversive, queer. But that's in here too. Like think of the scene where he dresses up as the convict's girlfriend Mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel like bugs doing it for a laugh. Like when the cop is like, Oh, I like your outfit. And like Pee Wee gets out and is like proud of his little outfit. Yeah. Well, I think that there's something I really like that reading into it. And there's something really beautiful about the fact that Pee Wee is unabashedly himself. Yes. And that he doesn't want to date anyone. Yeah. Like all these women, (laughs) All the ladies love Pee-wee. And Pee-wee's just like, "Eh." (laughs) no. (laughs) Sorry, the phone's breaking up. (laughs) Yeah, like he he doesn't really he like I was gonna say he doesn't get embarrassed, but he does get embarrassed, but not for being himself. No. Yeah. Um he's embarrassed if he wipes it on his bike. (laughs) He's not embarrassed by dressing up like a lady to avert the authorities. And being like, oh, I look kind of cute in this. Yeah. Or being wacky in the magic shop or 
be, being, <laughs> being silly in a certain kind of space. And that's really admirable. And that's something that's really lovely to see that somebody who is not a hurtful, harmful person, but just this person that embodies positivity and fun and And being yourself even when you're weird i feel like i feel like peewee is both like just like a bastion of like weirdos yeah but also like he feels very neurodivergent oh yeah like he brings very little kid energy like i think specifically of the scene (laughs) of the scene where he's on the train car and the traveling bum doesn't want to (laughs) <laughs> he keeps singing and Pee-wee's done listening to him. So he just gets out of there. Yeah. He's like, I'm done. <laughs> You're not doing this anymore. Um, but he does also give that, like, there is a queerness to the character of Pee-wee, even in the fact of, like, there are so wi- so many women, like, thirsty for him in the movie. And he's just like, no, thank you. Yeah. And, like, not, again, not apologetic for that. Like, the first time that he... He gives his speech to like Dottie who loves him so much. And I mean, he's not necessarily the nicest to Dottie about it, but when she like wants him to go to the drive-in with her and he like tells her like, ah, I'm a loner. I'm a rebel. After he does that, he walks away and starts laughing because he's like, ha ha ha. Yeah. You know, and the fact that he never ends up with clearly ends up with a woman is like actually, I think really radical. Yeah. Well, I think what's really beautiful about, the person Pee-wee Herman is all embodied in the final scene when we were kind of going through all of the people that we've met throughout Pee-wee's big it's adventure. It's a big fish scene. It is, but I think it speaks to how infectious and how big of an impact Pee-wee can have on people's lives once he's mm. in them is that people will be there for him and people want to be a part of his life and are happy to be there. And I think that that's really... That's really beautiful. Even, yeah, like you said, like it doesn't need to end on a, on a romantic note necessarily, but to know that Pee-wee has friends and that he has a community and that he and is. That he's like one hearts along the way. And that he's accepted for who he is. Yeah. I think is a really beautiful thing. And that he thing. accepts others for who they are. Oh, yeah. Like he becomes friends with convicts and biker gangs and Paris loving women. And, you know, like he's kind of willing to take anybody on as long as they're not Francis. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and like, even even that, like, he's a doink to Francis because Francis is a doink. Yeah, and Francis, yeah, Francis is a doink to him. I've also I, I saw a lot of reviews where people say that it's very like anti the rich and anti cop. This movie, <laughs> <laughs> Pee Wee Herman is a is a political standout. Big time. Um, I love that so much. Something else that's interesting to me, and I don't know if I knew this until now, is that this was Tim Burton's first feature film. Holy shit! Really. Yeah, and it feels, there was a couple of moments where I kind of nudged you and I'm like, oh, that's really Edward Scissorhands or like the clown nightmare sequence feels very Beetlejuice. Yeah. Um, that I feel, that I see so much of like the iconic Tim Burton-ness. Like there's that period in like the 90s and early 2000s where I love everything he ever made. I haven't really continued to follow his career because like as he got more into like doing CGI stuff, it lost that like tangible whimsy that, so much of his other films had um, would love for him to make a film that like really gets me back on his side. I think the last movie of his I liked was Sweeney Todd. Yeah. And then we saw like the Alice in Wonderlands. We saw big eyes. We watched a couple episodes of Wednesday. It just hasn't really gotten me, but so many of his films in the nineties 
and a couple of those like early 2000 films are so important to me. Yeah. And I see that like emerging voice in this. And I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad you brought up Tim Burton because yeah, like I think, I mean, it's nuts to think that this is his first feature film. And so it's also Danny Elfman's first score. And it's, it's incredible. Yeah. And just a match made in heaven between the two of those people. I really regard this time period of Tim Burton, like everything that you just mentioned. He is a master, or at least he was a master of making movies for young people that started them on their horror loving journey. Oh yeah. And making things that are scary in a good way. Yeah. Where you're like, you're freaked out and then you're like, but I liked that. Exactly. He's very entry level horror. It's whimsy and scary at the same time. Exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. It's exactly that. And he did it so, he did it so well. Like there's scary shit in this movie and it's done so well, but it's done in the whimsical nature of the world of Pee Wee Herman. Mm-hmm. And it matches it so well. He's made the, the sec Batman Returns has some fucked up shit in it. And Edward Scissorhands, what? Oh, <laughs> I will eventually cover Edward Scissorhands, but my journey with that is like loving it and then being scared of it and then loving it again. Like there is, I think Edward Scissorhands may be the first film that my mom tells me I obsessively watched mm. like like just would like put it on it would end I would restart it like I I all I wanted to do was watch Edward Scissorhands and then around like four or five I started to get real like I was watching it at two or three and then at four or five I started to get really scared of it like it really upset me and I mm. could not watch it and then slowly I picked it back up and like liked it again yeah that is Tim Burton in a nutshell yeah and I there is just that period of time watching his movies and the movies he was making that just warm my heart and throw me right back to this very specific time in my life. And it's so sad that I just feel like he's lost some of that magic. And, you know, maybe he's regained it with younger generations with the Wednesday show and things like that, or doing the Dumbo movie and things like that. But it's, that's not my Tim Burton anymore. Yeah. Um, so that's really sad. But I'm so grateful for this, this small slice of time and the films that he was putting out in it. I mean, when I read like why he was the the pick for this film and then why he agreed to it, he, he was just like, they, they all just seem to really like each other. And in that Entertainment Weekly article talking about, I guess, the like the last Pee Wee Herman thing that was made, uh, Pee Wee's Big Time, I think it's called. It was made in 2016. Judd Apatow produced it. Oh, uh, Pee-wee's Big Holiday, it's called. Hmm. So in the article, it says, quote, Judd Apatow, who produced Pee-wee's Big Holiday, told the Times he loved Pee-wee's Playhouse because it was, quote, a group of strange people who are having a great time and being really nice to each other, quote. That's what Pee-wee Herman ultimately stood for. It's hopefully what Paul Rubens will be best remembered for. And not for nothing, a group of strange people having a great time and being really nice to each other seems almost revolutionary right about now. No shit. You know, like, I, that's like the thing that gets me the most emotional in the world is just kindness. Especially like, I like, I like that idea. Strange people having a great time and being really nice to each other. Yeah. And that you could almost 
say that that was the vibe in the theater yesterday when we went completely where I'm like, there's a lot of people in this theater that like, I don't know that we would just on by looking at them that we would get along, but this is bringing us all together. And like, it was just like a, it was a grinning theater as opposed to like seeing citizen Kane with like a film theater, Mm. you know, we're all here to watch a film. Like this was just, there was an energy and like, it was one of the, this was play, played for their real family cinema series where like kids under 12 get in free. So sometimes it's a little bit of a noisy theater and there was a couple moments of that, but honestly it was one of the quietest real family cinemas other than like laughter at appropriate times. Um, you went to the bathroom after the movie ended, but I saw someone who was dressed as Pee Wee. Oh, cute. Like uh, he had, they had like um, blue jeans on, but the top was uh, like a white button up. And then, like, the gray uh, blazer and then a red bow tie. And I was like, that's really, obviously, P.B. Herman means a lot to that person. And that makes me feel, like, emotional thinking of, like, them getting to come and see this after his death and honor him through the really lovely fact that that our favorite theater makes an effort to, like, give us space to do that. I can, you know, and thinking about it now, I can totally see why kids might have been for lack of a better word more wrangled during this film is because it's beloved by the people taking them to the film yeah like i don't know that anyone was just like oh let's just take our kids to the free movie like i don't think spy kids is gonna be as wrangled in and i noticed that like there was a couple moments where kids were getting like a little loud and their parents took them out of the theater yeah and i'm like and that usually doesn't happen so i'm like yeah it was pretty i don't know it was just i didn't expect it and like we for the longest time we weren't going to go to this. And then you said, I think I want to. Mm-hmm. And like, I think it's cause I didn't like it last time I watched it, but I'm really glad we did. And it was a really meaningful and memorable experience. I a hundred percent agree. It was so great to revisit this and I, I love it so much. And this was just a great reminder that I still really love it. And I love it in a new way. You know, we, as a last thought, we rewatched, that thing you do this week, which is one of another movie you loved as a kid. And I just was like overcome with this feeling of love for you. And I told you in the moment that like sometimes I when we watch a movie that you loved when you were a little kid and I just think about this little freak <laughs> who loved the weirdest movies, who was like three years old watching that thing you do and peewee's big adventure and jaws and the thing and rocky horror picture show i'm just like you were such a little weirdo (laughs) and you're just like a big weirdo now and i just have this affection for this little version of you that i never met but still exists inside of you and it just makes my heart swell and makes me love you even more and i feel like i wasn't for whatever reason the last time we watched peewee's big adventure i wasn't able to open myself up to that and then watching it this time, I was like, this means so much to the person who means so much to me and gives me insight into who you were as a little kid and the part of that that exists in you now. And it just makes me love you, the, the, the little freak you were and the big freak you are even more. That's very sweet. Thanks, Boone. How did Phoebe's Big Adventure make you feel? It made me feel this time around delighted by the pure joy and silliness of you uh it made me excited to discover a new love for it as an adult 
All right, last film of the week, and it's probably going to be a quick one um, just because of the nature of the film. We went and saw the 2023 comedy drama romance Shortcomings. We really wanted to see this because we quite like the director, Randall Park, although we've never seen him directing a feature film. We've mostly seen him acting and are quite fond of him. So it was directed by Randall Park and written by Adrian Tomine, who wrote the graphic novel that it is based on as well. It stars the very babely Justin H. Min as Ben, the very babely Sherry Cola as Alice, and new to us, but the very babely Ali Mackie as Miko. So all the babes. Triple babes. Triple babes. Um, synopsis. Follows a trio of young Bay Area urbanites, Ben Tanaka, Miko Hayashi, and Alice Kim, as they navigate a range of interpersonal relationships while traversing the country in search of the ideal connection. I think you mean young Bay Area. Bay Area. Wow, wow. What did you think of shortcomings? I mean, first of all, we went to this with some new buds for the for a first time hang, which was totally lovely and really, really fun. lovely. Um, and I was looking forward to this. Um, I liked many of the people that were involved in it, as you mentioned. And I'll kick things off by saying Justin H. Min is a total babe. Uh, we talked about him on the show before in one of our favorite films, After Yang. This is a very different project than After yeah. Yang. But he's a, yeah, he, he's a total babe. He has a very enviable... Someone has a crush. Yeah, no, big time. <laughs> he had a very enviable jacket that he was wearing at the start of the film. Similar hairstyle to you, so you're probably... Yeah. Um, feeling that yeah I was uh, no doubt probably blushing at a few points during this film I thought he was very babely his character of Ben however I wanted to flick him several times this is one of those not unlike passages which we covered last week where the protagonist is is incredibly unlikable yeah but like passages the film is aware of that and the film is exploring the unlikability of that character. Yeah, this is another one. It's exploring messy adult relationships between young adults and the ways they navigate them in some of the unhealthiest ways. And I equate the character of Ben to a Tom from 500 Days of Summer or Scott Pilgrim, Ted Mosby, Ross from Friends, or dare I say, Jim from The Office. You want some hot takes? I got thoughts about Jim from The Office. And he's just like this guy that nothing is his fault and it's the world and the people in it that are making things not go his way. And it's just like, fuck you, dude. But so many dudes are like this, which makes it challenging. Thankfully, unlike all of those films that you mentioned, but like to a degree, Scott Pilgrim, definitely like passages. The film is aware that he is a really poopy guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's part of the exploration. Like all of these women who just want him to be more aware of the fact that he is the problem, mm-hmm. that he's the piece of shit and it's not the world. Um, that's hard to watch mm-hmm. because he's not likable. And I hate to keep comparing these passages, but passages is coming at it from a very like grounded dramatic place Whereas and and like very artsy place, whereas this plays more like an indie rom com, like yeah. that's the the lighting and the style and the score all play more to like that genre of film. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like it's a lot more self aware than some of those have been, and so I very much appreciate that. Also, when if we ever had that film with an Asian cast, that like and is also explicitly exploring concepts of identity around 
ethnicity um, and language and dating. And so I think that that's really important and is not for me or you just necessarily speak on the relevance of that to like a Japanese man yeah. in his twenties who might watch this. Yeah. I mean, as frustrating as it is to see how these people are navigating the relationships in their life, in their life, but as the film meta commentates on, it's great that there is more diversity in this kind of storytelling. Totally. Yeah. Like there, I, that actually is one of my favorite parts of the film is this, the, the character of Ben is really like, judgmental of like other Asian films because his girlfriend um, Miko like works for an Asian film festival and he can be very judgmental about the types of films that are being made. And like through that, there's a bigger commentary on like, what does representation mean? Yeah. I, I really, I really found it like interesting. I really, on that like intellectual meta commentary level, I love all the actors. I'm a really big fan of Sherry Cola. We talked about her when she was in Joyride, but um, she is my favorite character in my like, queer liberal soap opera fan favorite good trouble um so I, i'm really excited to see her in more things i'm really excited to see justin nachman popping more and more um damn was a stylish so stylish like we've been uh really putting our house together in the last week or so and i was like looking at things in the apartment being like "Ooh, i like the way that i like that tchotchke they got there <laughs> or i like the way that they framed their posters there but also the like the outfits that everyone wears are so good. Everything's very good looking in this movie. Yeah, it is a it is a beautiful set design and costuming job. Yeah. And I think Randall Park did a really good job directing it too. Like I thought it it was like fun to watch and like moved along nicely. Yeah. I agree. I did once read a graphic novel by this guy. I found it a little free library and I had like seen it on people's lists and I really, it really wasn't for me. Um, and one of the people that we saw this movie with, uh, Yunsu is like a prolific reader. Like we met in a book club and this was our first time like hanging out in person. We, we have met in person before at like, um, gatherings with other people, but this was like our first time properly hanging out with Yunsu and, uh, Rosiva who is like, our kind of movie watcher, let me say, at the end of the movie, we heard, we, we were, <laughs> again, Sue goes, Rosiva likes to uh, stay to the end of the credits. And we're like, we do do, yeah. baby. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Um, but Yen had read Shortcomings, a graphic novel, and kind of gave us the lowdown afterwards that the graphic novel's a lot more objectifying of women. And there's just some like grosser, more 500 days of summary stuff going on in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting that he directed, uh, or the, sorry, not that he directed, but that Adrian Tomine, who wrote the graphic novel, did write the screenplay because that might show some like evolution in his own thought process about that content or like in tandem with Randall Park and other people involved in the film, maybe some shifting of of how they approached those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was glad to have that insight from somebody else because I don't think I want to read the graphic novel. Yeah. Yeah. No, this was like a decent time. It was like an easy little indie film that follows the beats of other easy indie films, with but, but with a little bit more self-awareness and a diverse cast that I think, like, I think like what we talked about with Bottoms last week, like it's important to have different types of films from different types of people 
And so I want a crazy rich Asians. I want a shortcomings and I want a past lives and I want an everything everywhere all at once. Like, you know, and, and I want a bottoms and I want a portrait of a lady on fire and I want a bad things. Like I want all of that. I want Rylane. Yes. I want multiple different types of films in different genres with people with different voices making them. Yeah. And starring in them. And so I'm glad this film exists and it's totally in the genre of films that like, if I saw this in my early twenties, I would have loved it. Um, I'm glad that it follows that path, but also is more self-aware than those films I loved in my early twenties. We didn't have to DNF it like watching the detectives. Yeah. I was kind of getting scared a little bit that we were going to start going into that territory. But. And then we brought our like cool new friends along and I'm like, oh no, we suggested this movie. Hopefully it doesn't go in that direction. <laughs> so what did, uh, how did shortcomings make you feel? It made me grateful to see a familiar story from a different voice. How did it make you feel? It made me feel frustrated by the protagonist, but charmed by everyone else. Yeah. Envious of the fashions. Envious of the fashions and the apartments. Okay. Let's you talk, ready to talk about dads? Let's talk about the dads of the week. Who is your bad dad nominee? My bad dad nominee is Charles Foster Kane. Same. That guy is like the proto bad dad, let me tell you. Yeah. Great greatest bad dad of all time. Yeah. Let me tell you this, uh as we're watching Citizen Kane, I'm like, love this movie or not. This is some good bad dad fodder. The forefather of bad dads. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he is just selfish and manipulative. And I mean, he actually has a son in the film and he's a absolute shit to his son. Yeah. And to like his multiple wives and to the public. And he's just like an insolent little shitty man who's like so concerned with, I mean, the frequent thing they say throughout the film is that he wants other people to love him. Yeah. Not to jump ahead or anything, but uh, he is the total opposite of Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> <laughs> I see where we're going here. I mean, uh, do you have anything else to say about Charles Foster Kane and why he is a really bad dad? I mean, despite his best intentions at the start, he, his ultimate, he ultimately falls down the bad dad spiral. And it's his disregard for others, specifically those that he quote unquote loves the most, that is the most brutal and unredeeming about him. He can kick rocks. Yeah, I um, I wouldn't want him to be my dad. No, why don't you take your rosebud and stick it up your rosebud? Get out! <laughs> Get out! So Charles Foster Kane. Don't be uh, don't our be our dad. dad. You 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 goof. Rad dad. I picked Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, I mean, you <laughs> definitely didn't bury the lead on that one. Um, you know, well, I I think that all the we said all the best stuff already. You know, while being this what's regarded as a quote unquote man child, I think that he is just an embodiment of positivity and bringing people together in. And, and acts of kindness. His sense of fun and whimsy is infectious. He is both inspiring and uplifting of others and their dreams. And through that ins inspiration, he, it allows other people to rethink their lives and rethink their dreams and wanting to, you know, discover new things for themselves. And I just feel, I get the vibe that once you meet him, you're friends for life. 
So sometimes you need to meet him twice in the case of me, but I've got a friend now. Yeah. But that's, that's my pick. Um, I can already tell you that I'm going to give, give that to you. I don't know why I didn't think of him. I'll say who I picked though. <laughs> I picked Ernie from the return of the living dead. He's the, he's the I'm not mortuary guy. <laughs> What'd you say? I'm not giving no, it to I Ernie. Know. But do you get why I picked him? He's like, like he, this group of people come to him with a chopped up dead zombie and he helps them out. And like from the rest of the film on, he's kind of the most logical voice of reason and like tries to keep people alive and, and all that. But apparently there's like this very, like you have to be paying attention to notice it, but apparently there's this like subtext that he is a, like a, a, a Nazi who escaped to the States and is in hiding. So like that's not very good dad energy, but just as a character, and if we don't consider this weird subtext that the the writers and director put in, I did think he was a very protective and communicative character. But I like what you said about Pee Wee much better. So Pee Wee Herman, be our dad. Um, and of course the bonus daddy of the week is Justin Hman. Um. I love your I love your fashions. I love your style. Hated your character, but Justin H. Min, give us a kiss. <laughs> Doesn't well. I we typically don't like bonus daddy the actor, so I guess Ben is the bonus daddy, even though he's like a shitty boyfriend. It, it's but purely superficial. He's yeah. This is this is a shallow moment, um, because he's very handsome. So I guess Ben, we give us a kiss. <laughs> Um, okay, Rad Wreck of the Week. We've this has kind of been a week of films that this has come up a few times, and I really like it. So we're gonna say the Rad Wreck is to seek out familiar stories from different voices. Much like we were just talking about with shortcomings, you know, it isn't necessarily a story that's breaking the mold, but it is coming from voices that haven't typically had the opportunity available to them to tell these stories. So if there is a piece of media you really like. Like if you like it, if you really like Citizen Kane and you like the kinds of things that came from it, maybe there's stories from different voices or other voices that can tell it similarly, if not better. Yeah, if you like 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think you probably would like Woman in the Dunes. Yeah. And yeah, just seeking a multiplicity of voices within those types of films, I think is a important thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, it can, it doesn't need to just be films. It can be books. It can be comics. Yeah, if you like romance books, read a queer romance. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of, um, go read A Little Life. It'll obliterate you, but it is amazing. Um, Wouldn't call it a romance. No. It's trauma, trauma, trauma. But gooda, gooda, gooda. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Like we mentioned off the top, go listen to our episode on the most recent episode of Nowhere Fast Podcast. It was a lovely conversation and we would love for you to listen to it. You can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in little show notes and we would absolutely love you forever if you share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these wee peas this week. So until next time, 
I'm Kylie, and my dad's dead, and I don't understand what a weepy is. Uh, a weepy, it's P-wee reversed, but W-E-E dash P-E-A. So we're wee-peas. Oh, cute. Confusing, <laughs> but cute. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Uh, not all dads need to be bad. <laughs> need to be? It's have to be. Not Well, not all dads have to be bad. Uh, do the Pee Wee Herman laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I can do it better. <laughs> That's it. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.